Good morning, church. So I am privileged to read to you today from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. I'm uh, going to be reading for the, the very first Bible I ever bought for myself. It's NIV, so you probably won't be able to follow on. But here we go. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and by the command giving, given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient, patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to come to you with uh, thankful and humble hearts. Um, thankful, Lord, for your son, the gift of salvation that you've brought to us by him. Lord, we are also thankful for the word that you have given to us. And Lord, we ask that you now would help us um, to, with our blind eyes see and with our deaf ears hear and with our hearts of stone be made flesh, Lord, that we might be able to understand and um, do as you have asked of us. Lord, we also pray that you would now fill Mark with your spirit, that he would be able to speak into our lives, Lord, that we would not just hear his words, your words, but Lord, that we would be changed by them, and Lord, that we would act upon them. We say these things in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Hey, Jonathan, I forgot about this. Is this, oh, this mic okay? Okay, good. So this morning we started something a little different. We had the Sunday school kids here in church to worship with us. So I'm going to pray for them and for the Sunday school class, and then we will dismiss them to their teachers. Their teachers are standing in the back. If you guys could raise your hands so that they know where to go. So once I'm done praying, if the kids would just all file back to the back and their teachers will take them to the class. Parents, if you would prefer that your children stay with you in the, in the service, they are welcome here. So that's entirely up to you. So let me pray and then the kids will be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of children. And we recognize our responsibility, and we take that responsibility towards them and towards you seriously. So, Lord, I pray that this morning you would be with their teachers, that you would open their hearts and minds, that the children would uh, hear your word and understand it and leave today uh, blessed by that word. Lord, for those kids who may stay here in the chapel, I pray that um, you would just work in their lives through the message this morning. And so, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for the gift of children that you have given us, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, kids, you are dismissed.
So I want to start off this morning with the question. If I say to you that um, Pastor Jackie is coming back tomorrow, how does that make you feel? Well, I really thought, and I'm sure Jackie is hoping that you would have given a better response than that. <laughs> Hopefully you feel glad. I certainly feel glad. And maybe you're even expectant and looking forward to seeing him at coffee in the morning. I don't know if he's going to be here for coffee in the morning, but I assume he will. Um, so you have hope in his return, even though he's been gone and he's been sick and, you know, we've been praying for him. You have hope that he's going to return. And that's good because it seems like there's not a lot of things to hope for in this world today, doesn't it? In fact, it's all too easy to lose hope. But let me tell you something this morning that is much more hopeful than Jackie's return. And that is that Jesus Christ is coming back. Throughout the centuries, the reality of that promise has formed the foundation of the believer's anticipation. It is the church's blessed hope. It is her deepest longing. And it is the great climax of human history, a time of redemption for believers and of judgment for God's enemies. Jesus will return. But let me ask you another question. In practice, how does that affect your daily life? Is it really your hope? Do you really believe he's coming and are you really looking forward to his return on a day-to-day, minute-by-minute basis? I see some heads shaking. That's really encouraging. Are you waiting and watching for his return? Or is the promise of Jesus' return something that we know about but we rarely, if ever, think about? Sometimes it seems, especially in these crazy, cynical times, that we define hope as a little boy once did when he said, hope is wishing for something you know ain't going to happen. That's not what real hope is about, is it? Like faith, the object of our hope is all important. Hope in reason or in science or hope in politics, that's going to give you no comfort at all. It's only going to disappoint you and make you crazy. Hope in government or hope in presidents is completely in vain. If you haven't figured it out by now, it doesn't really matter who's in the Oval Office. The world is spinning out of control, and the president can't stop it. But the hope in the promises of Christ is where true peace and comfort will be found. And it is because of this hope that the early church found tremendous comfort during persecution as they looked forward to his second coming. After all, the readers of this letter had already endured much persecution from outside the church. You remember back in 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 through 13, Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When will his glory be revealed? It's when he returns. Peter starts his letters with persecution from outside, and now he's going to warn of trouble again from false teachers inside the church. Because of the troubles that the believers had experienced, they longed for the return of their Savior, the judge who would make all things right. And today and every day, so should we. We should long for the return of our Savior. When Debbie and I were young, uh, we used to say, we know Jesus is coming back and we can't wait for him to come. And then we would say, but I hope he waits until our kids are grown and we see them married and they have grandkids. That's immature thinking. And it's foolish thinking because nothing that this earth can give us, nothing that the world provides, can even begin to compare 
with what we will have on Christ's return. I've learned that as I've matured in my walk. And I look back now on the things I said as a young believer and laugh. Of course, the devil also recognizes how important the second coming is to the church. When Christians live in anticipation of Christ's promised return, they live with spiritual enthusiasm, knowing that they will soon give an account to their master. Paul warns in Romans 13, 11 through 12, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. 2,000 years later, we're still waiting. But let me tell you, friends, every day, salvation is one day closer than it was the day before. And we need to be patient, and we need to be hopeful, and we need to be watching. When believers forget about the second coming, when it ceases to become something of primary importance in their life, they begin focusing instead on things of the world, and they become self-absorbed and grow apathetic and cold towards eternal things. Satan knows that if he can get the church to disregard the importance of Christ's return or even completely deny that it'll happen, he can remove a very significant source of Christian hope and motivation. And to that end, the devil constantly places skeptics and false teachers within and around the church, men who reject, minimize, or alter Jesus' promise. The same false teachers who, misled Christians, who mislead Christians today were also around in Jesus' time and in Peter's time. So in today's text, Peter responds directly to the false teachers' attacks. First, he considers the false arguments that they made against the second coming. Second, he answers those accusations, providing counterarguments which support Christ's return. And finally, he finishes by assuring his readers that no matter what the heretics say, God's future judgment is certain because God's word is true. So let's look at our text. Starting in verse 1, Peter writes, This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. <clears throat> Peter opens this chapter with a reminder. Excuse me. And in this reminder, basically what he's saying <clears throat> is... Remember the last letter where I reminded you about the words of the prophets and the commands of Jesus and how false teachers will try to lead you astray and how you can recognize them? I'm going to do that again because you need it. Peter knew all too well that you can have a sincere love and a sincere desire to follow Jesus and yet, at the same time, forget what he said. Remember, Peter's denial in Luke 22, verses 60 through 62, we read, But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You see, the best intention, most loving, most uh, active believer can still sometimes forget the things that we've been taught 
And we need to be reminded of those things over and over and over again. We need to spend time daily in God's word so that we will know those things, so that we will be reminded of them, so that at the proper time when they are most needed, the Spirit can bring those commands and those promises back to our mind in order to protect us and help us. So Peter wants us to remember the things that Jesus taught. He wants us to be assured that those things are true. He wants, us to, re- he wants to remind us of the teaching of the apostles. And by the way, this reminder isn't a gentle one. It's not like your iPhone beeping to remind you to stop and buy milk on the way home. The term stirring up is not like stirring sugar into a cup of tea. The word is an active verb, and it means to shake up, to arouse, to lift from a prone position. It means wake up. Peter is saying something he wants to stir us up, and the way he wants to stir us up is more like a mechanical paint mixer. Have you ever seen a mechanical paint mixer? I hate to paint, but I love to watch them mix it. They put the can in that machine and it goes, (coughs) and it shakes the heck out of that can. And that's the kind of reminder, that's the kind of stirring up that Peter is urging us to experience. And why is this reminder apparently so important to Peter? You remember that throughout both these letters, he continues to talk about false teachers. Why is that so important to him? It's because he knows the danger of false teachers. He knows. Too many people in the church today are either unaware or don't care about this danger. Peter knows false teachers were in his time and are in our time leading believers astray. He knows the only defense against them is for us to know the truth of his word. And Peter warns that we should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And then he says this, know this first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffing. You see, throughout church history, and I think probably more today than at any other time, False teachers have used the common tactics of ridicule and sarcasm to intimidate people into listening to their lies. In this case, the hope of Jesus' coming was the target of mockery. It's hard for us, I think, to see the sarcasm in these passages because we don't use terms often like mock or scoff. But that's why Peter used the term scoffer. It's almost like he's saying, hey, guys, scoffer's going to scoff. Remember Pilate's response to Jesus in John 18, 37 and 38? Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, and Pilate said to him, what is truth? You hear the sarcasm in that? What is truth? And people say that today, don't they? In fact, they say it more today, I think, than at any time in human history. What is truth? Truth is what I think it is. Pilate's not asking a legitimate question here. He's not probing to see and understand what Jesus' response to him was. His response was snide. It was sarcastic and flippant. This is the tone used by the scoffers Peter teaches about. And it's the same tone that those people use when they question God today. You see, the early church believed that Jesus was coming soon. The Apostle Paul, for example, thought that could even occur within his lifetime. And this view was probably shared by all the disciples. As followers of Christ, as people, as men who had known Jesus intimately, who had lived with him and watched him and seen the way he lived his life, they longed to be reunited with their Lord. 
and they long to see his kingdom established on the earth. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 through 18, Then we who are alive, we who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So during the apostles' lifetime, most of them believed that Jesus would return. And as time went on without Jesus appearing, some believers to whom Peter wrote were beginning to doubt if he was ever coming back at all. They worried that their hope was not as sure as they had first believed. You can understand that, right? We're living 2,000 years beyond the time that they hoped for the return, and still Jesus hasn't come back. It's easy to say, where is he? Why hasn't he come? Look around the world today. If the world is not ready for Jesus to return, then I don't want to be here when it is. I want to be gone already because things are pretty bad, aren't they? The false teachers, of course, were quick to capitalize on such fears. They started planting seeds of doubt and fueling end times anxiety. Anybody ever have end times anxiety? You listen to... uh, a uh, Bible teacher talk about the end of the world and how awful it's going to be. Well, these people, these false teachers were fueling end times anxiety. They were telling believers, hey, Jesus is not coming back. Peter urged his readers to know this first of all. Know this first of all. And the phrase first of all is not speaking about a chronological sequence, but rather it's about first priority. He's saying this is most important. Before developing his counterarguments, Peter's primary goal was to warn his readers about the false teacher's tactics, namely that they were purposefully denying the return of Christ to indulge their own sinful desire. And whether or not they admit it, immorality is the real reason that false teachers deny the second coming. For false teachers, their lifestyles focus on their own lusts and sexuality. Second Peter 2.10 says this, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. They deny Christ's return because they hate the thought of divine retribution. Romans 1.18 Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, false teachers want to feel the freedom to pursue all kinds of lustful pleasures without any fear of future punishment. This is foolish. It's foolish for them and it's foolish for us. Because the reckoning will come no matter what. No matter what you believe, no matter what you disbelieve, the day of Christ will, will happen. And when it happens, the judgment will happen as well. But humans seem to have an endless ability to justify bad behavior. I know, because I've spent a good part of my life justifying bad behavior. I try really hard not to do that anymore, and I don't justify the same behaviors that I did before I was a believer. But it's easy for me to say, well, I'm angry because you made me angry. See, we can justify almost anything in our own minds. The mocking question that Peter records here, where is the promise of his coming, introduces a denial of the Lord's return based on a false view of history. To support their misguided view, the false teachers claimed, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So what is it they're saying here? What are they, what are they asking with this question? What they're saying is that the history of the world is uniform, that nothing disastrous has ever happened in the past, So there's no reason to believe it'll happen in the future. 
People today use this exact same argument. The world has gone on for, today they say, billions of years, and they deny the flood, they deny creation, they deny the times in history when God stepped into the world and performed supernatural acts. Today they take the scientific approach and they examine evidence and apply human reason and they draw a conclusion. And the fact of the matter is that they willfully ignore a good deal of evidence and that fact doesn't seem to disturb them at all. You see, you can look at rocks and cells and you know, all the atoms and the universe in the laboratory and, and draw conclusions, but you can't take supernatural activity into the laboratory and prove it. And so rather than attempt to reconcile supernatural events, these false teachers then, and false teachers today, simply ignore them. They willfully ignore history. Look at verses 5 through 7. It says, For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. What Peter's doing here is he's making a simple counter-argument to the, to the idea that things have continued along as they were without any change, so why should I expect a change? The, 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 basically, the argument could be summed up as everything remains the same. And he reminds believers that everything is, in fact, not the same. He points to the creation and explains that once there was nothing, but God formed the universe through water simply by speaking it into existence. By his very word, the world was created. And not only that, but God destroyed the world in a global flood by using the same method of creation, his word and water. In Genesis 9, God promises never again to destroy the earth by the means of a universal flood. But that does not mean that he will never again pass global judgment. On the contrary, Peter tells us, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. While the pre-flood world system was drowned with water, the present world system will be consumed by the flames, the fire and the flames and the judgment of God. That future judgment, as with the flood, will come by the power and authority of his word. Peter's rebuttal to these false teachers is both simple and true. The same God who created the world by his word can also act in his world and do whatever he decides to do. That seems pretty common sense, doesn't it? But it's not common sense if you disregard the creation. It's not common sense if you disregard the second coming. It's not common sense if you say the flood never happened because you are removing God from the equation. But if God is a part of the equation, then those things are proof. The creation, the flood, those things support the second coming. Because God acted and has acted in the past and is acting in the present, he will act in the future. God will do whatever he decides to do with the world. It's his word that made it. It's his word that holds it together. And his word is all-powerful. Now, I can imagine this back and forth between Peter and, and the believers, and perhaps there were some of the scoffers and false teachers around, and Peter's counter-arguing their, to their argument. And I can imagine they said the same thing we hear today. Well, if this is all true, then why hasn't Jesus returned to judge? Why hasn't it happened already? Look at the world around us. Even back then, to believers, the world seemed 
evil, and there was certainly evil in the world. I don't know that it was to the same level that we see it today. But the, but the question, well, then why hasn't he come back, is a question they use to confuse and, uh, and draw believers away from the truth. And today, that question certainly has merit, doesn't it? Now it's been thousands of years since the prediction, and we're still waiting. And the answer to the question, why hasn't he come, is in the last three verses. In verse 8, the first thing Peter points to is eternity. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Peter is probably paraphrasing Psalm 90 here. Psalm 90 verse 4 declares, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. Peter is encouraging his readers not to overlook this one fact, that God's perspective on time is much different than yours and mine. The amount of earthly time that passes is meaningless to an eternal God. It's meaningless. It's hard for us to wrap our head around that because we live in time, and time is something that that we are obsessed about. We spend time, we waste time, we try to manage time, we use time. And time is running away, and we all are aware of it. But those moments, those minutes that cause us so much concern, they mean nothing to God. A moment to God is no different than an eon. And eons pass like moments to the eternal God. God created time, and unlike us, he stands outside of it. He lives in eternity. We live right now in time. So what may seem to be a long time to believers, like a thousand years, is actually short, like one day, in God's sight. In context, Peter is arguing that while Christ's return may seem far off to us, It's imminent from God's perspective. Finite people must not confine an infinite God to their time schedule. It just won't work. The Lord Jesus will return at the exact moment determined by God in eternity past. Until then, we wait. Until then, we watch. Until then, We trust. Now to the believers in Peter's time, they were expecting it to happen. 2,000 years later, we're still waiting and expecting for it to happen. It might happen tomorrow. It might be another 1,000 years. We don't know. But what God does tell us is that we are to watch and wait and trust. Throughout the Bible... God's word is consistent. The message doesn't change, and neither does God. In verse 9, Peter reminds us of God's character. In verse 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, I want you to just think about this for just a minute. Where would you be, where would I be, apart from the patience and long-suffering of God? I suspect we would not be sitting here today. It is God's patience. It is God's long-suffering that allows us to come to a point of repentance, that allows us to come to a point of salvation. Peter's argument is simply this. The reason Christ's return has not happened already is because God is patient with sinners. Can I get an amen? Amen. Any waiting is only because of God's gracious long-suffering. 
remember verse 9. He is not wishing for anyone to perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's not that God is indifferent. It's not that he's powerless. It's not that he's distracted and forgot to say, oh yeah, Jesus, it's time for you to go. Instead, it's just the opposite. Because he is merciful and forgiving, he delays so that sinners might come to repentance. God and his word are merciful. And we need to thank him for that. The scoffers did not recognize God's eternal nature. They didn't understand it, and they didn't recognize his mercy. Why was God delaying the return of Christ and the coming of the day of the Lord? It was not because he was unable or unwilling to act. Nobody on earth has the right to decide when God must act. And he is not tardy or off schedule. God is sovereign. And he's sovereign in all things. He does not need the prodding or the advice from sinful man. Romans 11, 36 says this. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture. Oh, the depths and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Why are we so quick as human beings to man justice when we feel that we're wronged? Why are we so concerned for ourselves when we feel that we've been treated unfairly? We should all take a minute and thank God that he does not give us what we deserve. And while God's judgment is inescapable and deadly, God's merciful patience beforehand gives the opportunity for repentance, reconciliation, and salvation. His terrible wrath, and I'm telling you, terrible wrath doesn't even begin to explain the things we read in Scripture about God's wrath. His terrible wrath towards the individual sinner is immediately satisfied when that person repents and believes the gospel. Jesus says in Luke 15, 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. God is merciful. He is patient. And he is long-suffering even towards the scoffers and the mockers of Peter's day and our own. They need to repent, and he was willing to save them, and he is still willing. He is still patient. And just as an aside, I know you know this, but this is one of the things I think we need to be reminded of. To repent simply means to change one's mind. It's not the same as regret, which typically means, I'm really sorry I got caught. Repentance is a change of the mind that results in an action of the will. If the sinner honestly changes his mind about sin, he will turn from it. If he sincerely changes his mind about Jesus Christ, he will turn to him, trust in him, and be saved. And so God's patience is long-suffering, and he desires for everyone to come to repentance. He does not take pleasure in the condemnation of the wicked. But the time will come when God's patience will run out. The time will come when God's patience with the world will run out, 
But I think that sometimes God's patience with individuals is on a different schedule. We need to be careful, friends, that we're not pushing the end of God's patience because he will give us over to our sinful desires. He will say, okay, if this is what you want, this is what you can have. Having given the world as much time as he has sovereignly determined, God will pour out his wrath upon the earth. And while his patience currently holds back his judgment, the time of grace that mankind now enjoys, however long it seems by human standards, will not last forever. God's patience has an end. And that's how Peter ends his argument against the scoffers. He ends it with a pretty scary warning. In verse 10, he writes, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter confidently declares that the day of the Lord will come. No matter what the false teachers may claim, the evidence against them is overwhelming. No matter how long it's been, no matter how tired we are, no matter how much we wish for it to be today, God's day will come when he determines. And on that day, Jesus will return and judgment for the wicked will begin. You don't want to be one of the wicked during that day. In scripture, the day of the Lord signifies the extraordinary, miraculous intervention of God in human history for the purpose of judgment, ending in his final judgment of the wicked on earth and the destruction of the present universe. The Old Testament prophets viewed the final day of the Lord as a day of unparalleled judgment, darkness, and damnation, a day in which the Lord would completely destroy his enemies, vindicate his name, reveal his glory, and establish his kingdom. Peter described the day of the Lord as arriving like a thief, and that simply means that it's going to be unexpected, without warning, and disastrous for the unprepared. Does a thief put a note on your door and say, three days from now at midnight, I'm going to break into your house? Doesn't happen, does it? You don't know when the thief is coming. And we don't know when that final day of judgment will be. And so what do we do? We prepare for the thief, don't we? We lock our doors. We watch. We leave lights on. And we need to do the same with God. We need to be prepared. We need to be in his word. We need to be confessing and forgiving and repenting. And we need to be watching and waiting. Peter tells us that on the day of the Lord, the heavens will pass away with a roar. A universal disturbance that Jesus himself predicted in Matthew 24. Heaven and earth will pass away. Heavens means the visible, physical universe of space. Like Christ, Peter foresaw the disintegration of the entire universe in an instant of uncreation. Not by the hand of man or by natural causes, but by God's mighty power. The intense heat on that day will be so powerful that the earth and its works will be burned up. God's power will consume everything in the material realm, the entire physical earth, with its civilizations and natural resources, the surrounding planets, the whole universe and all the space in between. Yet even in the middle of that mind-boggling destruction, the Lord will protect his people. This destruction that's spoken about, this amazing blast furnace of fire that 
will dissolve the world and space and burn up all the elements. It's an interesting thing. This is one of those rabbit trails that I sometimes go down. But uh, a lot of people believe that this is going to take place in an almost atomic-like explosion. And that, that, think about it for a second, everything on Earth and the Earth and the planets are all made up of what? Atoms. And what if at the same instant all of those atoms explode? Like a gigantic nuclear bomb, the world will come to an end. That's not going to be a pleasant place to be. At the moment, mockers may ridicule and false teachers may scoff. But their discouraging comments and outright insults are only short-lived. One day, Christ will return and God's judgment will be displayed. A fact that is guaranteed by his promise and assured by his power. After he returns, the entire present universe will cease to exist. It will be replaced by a completely new heaven and earth where the righteous will live with God forever. The unrighteous, on the other hand, will face the eternal consequences of their sin. Because of this, believers are told to wait with eager expectation. After all, Jesus Christ is coming again. And his return is right on schedule. It's not, it's not waiting. When the time comes, he will be here. Now, I want to close today by circling back to a topic that, uh, frankly, has been on my heart for a number of years, and that is the responsibility of the church, and in particular leaders, to call out false teachers. Peter does this in First and Second Peter. He warns and he calls out false teachers, and he talks about their teachings. And I, I, need, I have to tell you that I take my responsibilities as a leader a pastor and an elder very, very seriously. And to be honest, I don't always live up to the standards of a leader as well as I should. I struggle with anger. I've told you that before. It's easy for me to love people that are loving. It's easy for me to love most of you. I'm just kidding. It's easy for me to love all of you. <laughs> but the people in the world who post their craziness on Facebook and, and tweet insane things, I have to stop and tell myself, this is not them. It's the enemy behind them and the lies that they believe, and they need my compassion and my love and my prayer. But still, I struggle with anger. That stuff, it, it hurts my heart when people insult God. And when they head down a road, that's only going to lead them into more and more trouble. And so sometimes it's hard for me to be loving. And like some of you, I'm getting up there in age, and I've been about around the block a few times. And when I see someone headed down that wrong road, I want to point out the right one. I want to grab them by the shoulders and say, stop. I've been this way, you don't want to go this way. And sometimes I do that in a critical way. It doesn't work. And so what I'm telling you is that I'm not perfect. And if I ever stand up here and say something to you that is not from the Bible, I want you to tell me. I, you have a responsibility to correct me. You have a responsibility to correct Jackie. We have a responsibility to correct and encourage one another. Despite all of these struggles that I, that I have with my flesh, I try to respond to the Spirit's prompting in my heart. I really do. I'm not always good at it, but I try. And the exponential growth of false teaching in the church troubles me deeply. Now, I've been told that calling out false teachers is not my place, that I should live and let live. But that's not what I see in the Bible. 
what I see in the Bible is that our responsibility is threefold where false teachers are concerned. Number one, we are to avoid them. Number two, we are to rebuke them. And number three, we are to call them out. So let me just give you a warning before you run out and start calling out false teachers. If I say something to you that I have misinterpreted from the word and I say it once and you come to me and say, Mark, I think we need to talk about this. And I say, wow, you're right. I never should have said that. That doesn't make me a false teacher. What makes you a false teacher is when you are on a continuous path of incorrect teaching and you refuse correction and you continue to lead people astray. It's an intentional disregard, just like Peter was talking about. And so, our responsibility, avoid, rebuke, and call out. And here's the thing, to avoid false teachers, and this is why I believe this is our responsibility, to avoid false teachers, you've got to know who they are. If I say to you, stay away from the dude in here who's got a knife in his jacket, you're going to be looking at everybody in here who's wearing a coat. You can't avoid somebody if you don't know who they are. This idea of identifying and avoiding bad behavior can be found all over the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 5.11, we read, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, don't even eat with such a one. Don't even sit down and share a meal with that person. If they go by the name of a brother, they call themselves a Christian, and they do any of these things, and false teachers oftentimes do all of them. We are not to associate with them. 2 Thessalonians 3.6 says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. Keep away. Avoid them. 2 Timothy 3.5. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. We are told in the scripture to avoid false teachers, to avoid people who continue on in willful bad behavior. Verses like these and others teach that Christians, and I believe leaders in particular, should be discerning and alert to behavior and teaching that dishonors Christ and confuses believers, and not to treat it in a casual or a harmless way. This is a difficult thing. Because I'm going to tell you that I regularly see believers post stuff on Facebook, quotes from false teachers. And I want to get on and comment on their post. Don't do this. But that's the critical me. So instead, I will take them aside and say, let's talk about this guy who you're quoting on Facebook. Now, I'm not suggesting that we judge the status of their hearts. That's not our job. That's God's job. But I am suggesting that we must evaluate their, teacher, their teaching and their behaviors. We have to. Otherwise, how will we know truth from false? In 1 Timothy 5, 19 through 20, Paul goes beyond just avoid them and steps in to rebuke them, and he rebukes them publicly. Speaking of elders, elders in the church who persist in error, he said, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, as for elders who have received a charge from two or three witnesses, but they refuse, they continue to persist in sin. And that sin, by the way, can be false doctrine or it can be evil behavior. Anybody who does not correct, accept the correction, Paul says, rebuke them in the presence of all. Haul them up in front of the church 
and rebuked them in the presence of everybody. Why? So that the rest may stand in fear. So that everyone else will understand, hey, that could be me if I don't mind what I'm supposed to be doing. Now this is not, Paul's not saying that we want to drag everybody up and, and you know, shout their sins in public, but he is saying that we have a responsibility to rebuke and correct, and when that correction is not received, we have a responsibility to let others know that this person is dangerous. And then Paul goes on in the scripture and he names names. So people who tell you don't name names, Paul names names. In 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul writes, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? This dude who's not following Christ, he's in love with the world, he deserted me. Watch out for him. 2 Timothy 1.15, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Two people called out. Look at, see those guys? See that guy? Watch out for them. They're not good for you. 1 Timothy 1.19, By rejecting, the rejection is faith and good conscience, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Two more times, Paul calls out people. He calls them out by name. Why? Not because he wants to make fun of them. Not because he wants to cause trouble. Because he wants the believers to be aware that they are dangerous. There are people in the world who are not safe for us. There are people in the church who are not safe for us. 2 Timothy 2.17 Their talk will spread like gangrene. It doesn't get much more forward than that. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now here we see Paul again. In fact, Paul names at least six false teachers that the church needs to watch out for in his writings. Now, I'm not interested in naming names for the sake of being mean. I'm not interested in naming names for the sake of making you feel dumb if you like that person or want to follow them. But I do want you to be aware of who the false teachers are and how to spot them. And so, rather than name names, I'm going to warn you about their teachings. And these are just a few of the teachings that you're going to hear outside these, these walls. And God forbid if you ever hear them inside these walls. So, and if later you want names of who's teaching these things, come see me and we'll have a chat. So if they say Jesus is not God, he's Michael the archangel, he's a man who lived a perfect sinless life, he was married, he's an example to prove that you can live a sinful life without being God, he was the first created being, etc., etc. They are false teachers. This is against scripture. If they have modern day prophets or they claim special revelation from God other than scripture, they are false teachers. If they have books or writings from apostles or prophets that they consider to be on the same level or higher than the Bible, they are false teachers. This stuff is all around us here in Idaho. If they teach that God wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy, or that you can live your best life now here on earth, they are false teachers. Your best life is waiting for you in heaven. What did Jesus say about this world? In this world you will have what? Trouble. Can I get an amen? There's a scripture we all understand, right? Live your best life. They are false teachers. If they say the Holy Spirit is not God, or is an impersonal force, a feminine spirit, 
a divine entity or doesn't exist, they are false teachers. They're all around us. If they claim that you can have anything you want by speaking positive energy to the universe, they are false teachers. Friends, people follow this stuff like crazy. If they promote emotional and spiritual experience above scripture, they are false teachers. If they say that you aren't saved or you don't have enough faith because you've never spoken in tongues, they are false teachers. If they teach that people are born good and that sin is not real, they are false teachers. They've also spent very little time around two-year-olds. <laughs> Heaven and hell are not real places, false teachers. Secret rites and rituals that not everyone can observe or participate in, false teachers. Everyone will eventually be saved because in the end love wins, false teachers. Are you getting the point? False teachers today are everywhere. The teachings that I've listed are just a few of their lies, and people follow them. We sit here and we laugh, and we think, no, you couldn't really believe that stuff, but people do. And the means to spread their poisonous doctrine is more powerful and more available than at any time in history. There was a time when these things had to spread by word of mouth. Now you can pick up a phone and spread it on Facebook. You can tweet lies on, on Twitter. You can post false doctrine on TikTok, and it immediately goes out to millions of people. Social media and the Internet are great tools for false teachers. We must learn to recognize them. And not only recognize them, we must avoid them. And we must rebuke them. And we must call them out for what they are. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Why does Peter and Paul and Jesus warn about them so many times and others? Because they, print, they present a clear and present danger to believers, especially to young and immature believers. Do you know how bank tellers know counterfeit money from real money? It's because they've handled so much real money, the fake stuff just pops out. They don't even really have to look at it. It becomes second nature. And that's the best way for you to know the truth and recognize false teachers. By handling the real word of God so much that you just know, you just know when someone is distorting the truth or telling an outright lie, you just know. Because you have been in the word so often that something in your soul goes ding, 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 that's not right, let me go check this out. Let me encourage you today. Get your one-year Bible if you haven't got one yet and start reading it. Or download the CCB app for your iPhone or your Android phone and follow along with the daily readings. They're right there in the app. You just have to open it up and there's the daily readings that everybody with the one-year Bible is reading. Do it. Imagine what would happen if we are all reading the same scripture every day, imagine how much that could empower this church. It's more important today than it ever has been. Too much of the world has crept into the church. It's up to us to teach you, but it's up to you to know how to discern the truth. Because as Peter taught in today's message, God's word is true. God's word is consistent. God's word is merciful. And anything other than God's word is a lie. Let's pray.
Father God, I thank you today uh, for your word. And I thank you, God, for just the many, many ways your word addresses our lives, the way it teaches us, the way we find encouragement in it, the, the promises that you have made that we have seen come true and the promises that we are still waiting for, the way that we are assured through your word that you love us and trust us and that you are patient with us. I'm grateful for this church and for the participation in your word uh, that I see in this church. And I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen that desire in us as individuals and as a body, that desire to be daily in your word, to know your truth inside and out, so that we can live in this world in a way that glorifies you and protects and helps others. Father, help us. We are weak, we are prideful, we are stubborn, but we trust that what you say is true. And we ask that you give us the strength to live as though we really believed it. Help us, God, to look forward to the second coming of Christ. To know and understand that it could happen any day. And that if it doesn't, your promise is still true. Help us to live in the light of eternity. Not to focus on the crazy, evil, messed up things of this world. And to be the believers that glorify you in our daily walk. God, we love you. We thank you for these things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.